Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our Greenbrier campus. Thanks for listening. So it's a it's a beautiful sunny day out there today, and I know that that's that's good after all the rain. We need we need rain and stuff, but I'm happy to see some some sun today. And maybe you're feeling that as well. Maybe um, maybe you're uh, the the weather is kind of a picture of of how you feel uh, sometimes whenever you're talking about. Uh, there's there's cloudy days, there's good days, and, and all that, and, and I know that there's probably uh, some stuff that you've maybe carried in with you this morning. There's a lot that goes on in our world. There's a lot that goes on in our life because life is uh, unsettling and scary at times, isn't it? And so even if you're not facing something right this second, maybe you are, maybe you, maybe you aren't. I think this text is going to uh, really just speak to us this morning. I, through studying this text this morning, I saw this in a new way, the story that we're looking at today. And when I say a new way, I, I don't mean like some just new made up way. I think I've finally seen it in the accurate way that, that we are to see it. And so I'm excited to share that with you this morning. But the truth is, is we all face things that are scary or uncertain, whether that's uh, cancer diagnosis or job loss or some kind of sudden change in your life. And, and the question is, is whenever you face those moments, what do you do? Right? How do you face those kind of moments in life? How do I face this diagnosis? What do I do with, with children that are just kind of going their own way? What do I do when things are falling apart at work or just in my life? What do I do then? If you're a teenager, what do I do at school when it seems like people are just coming at me for no reason or maybe I don't make the team or something like that? What do I do? And the question we're going to look at this morning is this. Where does control come from in the midst of chaos? Where do we find control in the middle of, of chaos? And the goal that I have this morning um, for us is I want us to see that in the middle of that chaos, Jesus is that control. And I know that that sounds super Sunday school answer, um, whatever, but that's the truth that we're going to see this morning, that Jesus is the control in the chaos. And I'm hoping that just each of us would just take a baby step this morning of just learning to trust Jesus a little bit more, right? And so whether you've been following Jesus for years and years and years, or maybe you don't know him at all, maybe you don't have a relationship with Jesus, the goal is gonna be the same for all of us. Just trust him a little bit more, right? So before we look at our text, I want us to pray. And uh, I wanna give you the opportunity just to prepare your heart for what God wants to say to you this morning. So just right where you are, would you just bow your head with me? And just take just a second, just in the quiet there to just ask God in your own heart, God, would you speak to me in this moment? And maybe that's a new prayer for you. Maybe you've never prayed anything like that. Maybe you've never prayed before at all, but just, if you're willing, just simply say, God, would you speak to me now? Now pray for those around you. Ask God to speak to them in this moment. God, we're asking that, that you would do what only you can do, and that's speak to our hearts change us, make us more into the likeness of Jesus. And so God, I'm asking as we open up this text that, that you would reveal things, illuminate the text to us. Would you help us to see? Would you help us to hear and help us to follow? We love you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, John chapter 18. 
We're gonna read the first four verses, try and set up the context of what's going on here, okay? And as I'm reading this, as you're reading your copy there in your lap, try and picture this scene, all right? Try and picture this. Verse one, chapter 18. It says, after Jesus had said these things, and what's, he, what's that? That's all of chapter 17, the prayer that he just prayed for himself, for his disciples, and for us. We looked at that prayer last week. After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Pause just for a second. The Kidron Valley. This was a valley that was outside of Jerusalem, it kind of set in between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. So in between the Mount of Olives and Jerusalem, you have this valley called the Kidron Valley. So they go across that to the Mount of Olives. In fact, um, the word garden there may, in your translation, if you have an NIV or NLT, it may say something like olive grove, right? So they are going to this garden on the Mount of Olives. You could call it the Olive Garden if you wanted. I know that's cheesy, but I thought it was funny this week. So they go to the Olive Garden together. He and his disciples went into it. Verse two, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, who is it that you are seeking? Now pause just for a second. So try and picture this. Like, can you see... Can you see what's going on? I know that you've probably heard this story before. This is the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. So you've probably heard this, but let me just try and paint the picture for you. It says that it's a, we know it's at night, right? So it's dark and we also know that it's cold. Verse 18 tells us it's cold. So it's dark and it's, it's cold and Jesus and his disciples have gone into this garden that's on the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley and they're there and we know from the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we know that they're praying together, and if you remember, the disciples keep falling asleep. That's the same scene, right? And so they're in, in the garden at night. The disciples are told to pray. They keep falling asleep, and then they start to hear people coming. Like, they hear a, a crowd of people coming into the garden, and they look up, and, and the person leading the pack is a guy named Judas, and Judas is a friend He's a, he's a follower of Jesus. He's been with Jesus for the last three and a half years. And he's leading this mob of people into the garden. He has betrayed Jesus. He, he's turned against him. He actually sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver or about the price of a slave, right? And so that's, that's what Judas has done. And, and he's leading the pack. He's leading really an army. It, it says he's leading a cohort or, or a company of, of, of soldiers. Scholars say that that would have been close to 600 Roman soldiers. So I don't know how you've pictured this scene, but you may think of a little mob of people coming out to get Jesus. No, it's 600 Roman soldiers. And, and some scholars are like, ah, it might not have been 600. Maybe it was closer to 200. Either way, can we agree that 200 to 600 Roman soldiers is a big stinking deal coming into the garden? Not only do you have the Roman soldiers, you also have the Jewish temple police who are coming with uh, them, with Judas, with the chief priests. All of them are coming into the garden to get Jesus, and they're coming at night, and they have weapons, and they have torches. Like, that doesn't look good, does it? 
Things don't, things don't look good for Jesus. I think I grew up reading this or understanding this story to think, man, they got him. You know, they, they found him. They, they got Jesus. They, they captured him. But this week, like I said, I, I saw it in a completely different way. I think I saw it the way that John wants us to see it here. And what I see here is that Jesus is in total control the whole time. He's in complete control. He intentionally goes to the garden, right? He intentionally goes into the garden. So back up to chapter 13, Jesus told Judas, he knowing that he was gonna betray him, Jesus told Judas, go and do what you're gonna do quickly. And it says that it was nighttime, right? And so Jesus told Judas to go knowing that he was gonna do it. Then Jesus hangs out there, talks with his disciples a little bit more. In chapters 13 through 17, he talks a little bit. He prays for them. And then he goes. Chapter 18 opens and says, after he said these things, they go across the Kidron Valley up onto the Mount of Olives into the garden where it says, verse 2 says, they went often. All right? They, they went there often. So Jesus knew that Judas would know where to find him. Because Judas knew the place too. That's what verse two tells us. Judas knew the place. And it's like, how did he know the place? This will blow your mind like it did mine this week. I don't know that I've ever seen this verse before. Luke 21, 37. Talking about the Passover week and the week where we are right here in Jesus's life. Luke 21, 37 says this. During the day, Jesus was teaching in the temple, but in the evening, he would go out and spend the night on what is called the Mount of Olives. Isn't that crazy? That's just one of those verses that are just, that's just there that you never really think a whole lot about. But now knowing what we know about in this story of John, we know that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives every night to sleep during Passover. That's how Judas knew where to find him. Judas knew where to go. So don't miss it. Jesus didn't go to the garden to hide. He went to the garden to be found. He knew that Judas would know where to find him there. He went so that Judas would find him there. In fact, John clearly says Jesus knew everything that was about to happen to him. So he's not caught off guard. They didn't catch him. They didn't pull one over on Jesus. Jesus didn't slip and go the wrong way. They didn't win. Jesus was and is in total control in this whole story. All right? And so for us, man, this story meets us right in the mess of life, doesn't it? Like right in the middle of whatever it is that's kind of keeping you up at night, whatever it is that you can't seem to shake, whatever it is that, that has your focus, you're facing these difficult situations. Again, maybe it's a personal situation of some kind of diagnosis, some kind of health concern. Maybe it's a loss of a relationship or maybe it's a, the loss of a job or some kind of sudden life change that you're facing right now. Maybe it's the mess of just the way that the world is right now, that anytime you turn on the TV and the news, it just seems like this world has gone absolutely crazy, and it just seems like there's chaos everywhere. Or maybe the things that's concerning us is just the constant seemingly attack on the capital C church, that just everywhere you turn, it seems like the church is under attack, and I think we feel some sense of obligation to, we gotta go fight it, we gotta go do something about it, like this story meets us right in the mess of all of that. And while it seems like things may be un, out of control, you just need to know that Jesus is in complete control always, right? And so that's the introduction. <laughs> now, 
Let's get into the rest of the text. Look at verse five with me. Verse five. It says that, that Jesus went out and asked them, verse four, went out and asked them, it says, who is it that you're seeking? And this is what they said, verse five. Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who betrayed, the, betrayed him, was also standing with them. And when Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground, all right? Now try and picture this, right? So in this scene, I think this mob of people probably think, we found him, we got him. And again, that's how I've always read this as well. It's like, all right, they, they got him. But then Jesus speaks and he says, I am he. There's a, there's a saying that teenagers have today, um, I don't really completely understand it, but like if somebody's uh, like really awesome, if they're the goat at something, if they're, you know, like you'll see like LeBron or different guys like that say, I'm him. You know what I'm talking about? Teenagers, you with me? Parents, you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about right now. But they'll say, I'm him. Or if somebody's really him, then you call him himothy. I don't know. And then, and then you gotta be like, let's go. That's what my boys do so like that's that's a thing that they say and it comes from this text it doesn't really come from this text i don't know where it comes from right but that's essentially what jesus is saying i'm him i am he literally what he says is i am i am and if you're any kind of bible reader you probably have some some little lights and sirens going off in your head right now about what that means and the fact that john actually repeats it three times that jesus said i am, right? In the Old Testament, God always refers to himself as I am, right? That's, that's, that's how he refers to himself throughout the Old Testament is I am. The most famous one is Exodus 3, 14. It says, God replied to Moses, says, I am who I am. And this is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent you, right? So this is how God refers to himself is I am. Am. And in the book of John, we've seen Jesus use that same title for himself. John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, truly I tell you before Abraham was, I am. And so right here, that's what he's saying again. Whenever they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, he says, I am. And they all fall back. Like, can you, can you just picture that? Like some kind of lightning or some kind of unseen force has, has hit them. I mean, this is some Marvel universe type stuff going on right here. But what John is showing us, this mob isn't in control at all, are they? They're, they're not in control at all. In fact, they're helpless. If Jesus had not consented to the arrest, there would have been no arrest. Right? They're not in control. Jesus is. This, this ungodly mob had absolutely no power over him except what he permitted. In fact, it sounds a lot like what he's going to tell Pilate in just a few moments whenever he's standing before Pilate, who is the most powerful man in the region. In John chapter 19, verse 10, it says this, so Pilate said to him, do you refuse to speak to me? This is when Jesus has been arrested and he's standing before Pilate. Pilate says, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus says, you would have no authority over me at all if it had not been given you from above. And that's what he's doing here 
as well when he says, I am he. He's putting them in their place to say that there is no power that you have over me except what's been given to you. And John, the writer here, wants us to see that the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus was all part of the plan. Like in the Good Shepherd talk in John chapter 10, if you remember when we talked through John chapter 10, Jesus says this, John 10, 18, he says, nobody takes my life from me. Nobody takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down and I have the right to take it up again, right? He could have stopped the whole arrest scene then and there. In fact, in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he clearly says to Peter in just a moment, we'll see it in, the, in our text, but he clearly says, I could at any moment call down legions of angels, right? Like I'm in complete control here. He could have stopped the whole thing, but he chose not to. He chose not to. He's the one with all the power in this scene. He's the one with all the power in the middle of the chaos. So we've seen the power of Jesus. Now I want you to see the protection of Jesus. Look at verse seven. It says, then he asked them again, who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I told you, I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. And this was to fulfill the words that he had said, I have not lost one of those you have given me. So we see the protection of Jesus. Like twice he asked them, who is it that you're looking for? And he asked them twice because he wants them to hear from their own mouths, we're looking for you, right? So he's saying, we're, you're looking for me, so let my followers go. Let, let my disciples go. And after the whole I am he thing and they all fall to the ground, whatever he says they're gonna do at this point. And so they do. They, they are gonna let the disciples, the followers of Jesus run free. We see that in Matthew 26 and Mark chapter 14. So he protects their physical life, right? He keeps them from being arrested. But this scene, the, their physical safety is, a, is symbolic of their eternal safety, right? And so John, in, in verse nine, he, he, he references back to the prayer that Jesus prayed in chapter 17. And in, and in John chapter 17, verse 12, and in that prayer, Jesus is praying for his disciples and he says, while I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them and not one of them is lost. Right? What, what he's doing there in John chapter 17 in that prayer is he's, he's not praying for their um, physical safety. He's praying for their spiritual safety, for their eternal safety. I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep them to the end. That's what Jesus is praying. But here in chapter 18, it's clearly physical protection that he's giving them. And so, you know, commentators are like, so what's going on there? You know, John in verse nine commentates and, and says, when he said that, he was he, he was fulfilling that prophecy that he prayed in chapter 17. Again, you just gotta understand that their physical safety, that them being released and not arrested in this moment as well is a picture of what Jesus is gonna do for them for all of eternity. Does that make sense? And so their, their physical safety is, is symbolic of their eternal safety. So how does that translate for us? Well, we know that we aren't exempt from the dangers of life, right? We know that we uh, will face pain, we'll face struggles, we'll even face, face death. 
But the truth of what's going on here is that Jesus is protecting his followers for for all of eternity. The primary way that God protects us is through salvation, through our trust and belief in him. He's gonna protect us for all of eternity. John chapter 10, again, it's the good shepherd talk. Jesus says this, he says, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them, runs away when he sees a wolf coming, and the wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he is a hired hand and doesn't care about the sheep. See, Jesus is saying in this world, there's an enemy who wants to snatch you, devour you, rip you away, but Jesus lays down his life as the good shepherd. Why? To protect you, to to bring you into safety for all of eternity. That's the good news of the gospel message, that we are separated from God, separated from a holy God because of our sin problem. We don't measure up to his standard. We never will, never can, right? And so Jesus came to earth to do what we couldn't, and that's live a life that we couldn't live, die a death that we should have died, and then whenever he goes to the cross, he dies for us, they put him in a tomb because he's dead, he comes bursting out of the tomb alive, and when he does, he offers us life. He offers us protection. He offers us eternal safety from the dangers of hell and destruction that are there. So salvation is God's eternal protection for his follower. He lays down his life for the sheep, right? He doesn't leave us alone to be scattered and destroyed by the enemy. And and all who trust or all who believe, that's the big word that John wants to use over and over again. John chapter 20, verse 31, right? I'm writing these things so that you would believe and that by believing you would have life. That's what it means to trust Jesus, to believe in him, place your life in him. All who do that, scripture says, will be saved. Protection, Jesus protects his followers. So in the chaos and, and all of life, Jesus protects his own, both now and for all of eternity. So we've seen the power of Jesus, we've seen the protection of Jesus, now I want you to see the plan of Jesus, the plan of Jesus. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. At that, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? All right, so in this chaotic scene, the mob has come in and Jesus steps forth, says, who are you looking for? And and they say, Jesus, and he says, I am he. They all fall down, right? And then it's in this moment, Jesus says, okay, let my followers go. And then Peter apparently steps forward with a sword and just starts swinging at people, (laughs) right? So let's talk about Peter for a second because he was obviously scared in this scene, just like you would have been, just like I would have been. I mean, he's watching a mob with weapons and torches come in to arrest his best friend. And Peter's not having it. Peter is, he's not having it. Peter is the kind of friend that you want, right? He's the kind of friend that you want around. He's a little bit crazy, but he's got your back. He's what you would call ride or die, you know what I mean? I had a friend like this growing up, his name was Micah, and uh, he was little, but he was a wrestler, and he was crazy, right? He was insane, and uh, he was one of those guys that he would put a move on you, twist you up into a pretzel, and break you in half before you even realized what was happening. 
you know so he was just he was crazy and so if something went down you wanted Micah there um, but you also had to tell him like eat, like don't actually hurt anybody you know what I mean he's just crazy so a good a good rule of life you want a friend in your corner that's just a little bit crazier than you are you know what I mean and that's Peter that's that's who Peter is here and so in this scene like it's all going down and Peter apparently just thinks he's like all right this is it and if it's going down well I'm going to go down swinging and so he takes out a sword and just starts whacking away and cuts a dude's ear off you know and I have to think he missed you know what I mean like he wasn't aiming for an ear I think he was going for the whole head you know like he's he's trying to capitate this dude right there like he 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 missed his target I don't know if he slipped or something like that but also we know like the way that the word sword translates it's not like a big old sword or or something like that it's a dagger like a little bit short sword and so here's this guy he's just going down swinging I mean remember there's like 600 Roman soldiers standing there and he's like I don't care what happens I'm just going to take this out and I'm going to start swinging he cuts this dude's ear off like Peter gets a bad rap sometimes because in a few verses he's going to deny Jesus to a slave girl around a campfire and I've probably preached it you've probably heard it preached that, that Peter was cowardly I don't think Peter's cowardly I think he's maybe a little dumb <laughs> but he's not he's not cowardly in this moment the problem is is he tries to take matters into his own hands you know that's where he messes up he tries to take matters into his own hands and his plan wasn't Jesus's plan what was Jesus' plan? Well, it says in verse 11, Jesus' plan was to drink the cup. Drink the cup. What does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, the cup always referred to, the, to suffering the wrath of God. Here's a couple of examples. Psalm uh, 75, 8. It says, for there is a cup in the Lord's hand full of wine blended with spices and he pours from it. All the wicked of the earth will drink, draining it to the dregs. Jeremiah 25, 15. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel said to me. Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and make all the nations to whom I am sending you drink from it. So that's what the cup represents. All throughout their history, all throughout the Old Testament, which would have just been their scripture, right? The cup represented the wrath of God, suffering the wrath of God. And Jesus in this moment is ready and prepared to drink that cup. Not just ready and prepared, I would say more than that, he was determined to drink that cup, right? It was his plan all along. Nothing caught him off guard in this moment. In fact, John says in 18.4, says, then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, he knew everything. He knew that Judas was gonna betray him. John chapter six, verses 64 and 70. He knew that he would be arrested during Passover, not before, not after, Matthew 26, 45 says. He knew even what kind of death that he was gonna die. He knew that he would be executed on a cross. John chapter 12, verse 32 and 33. Jesus says, as for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. The point is clear, Jesus knew and he was determined to drink the cup he was determined to stick to the plan and so if you don't hear anything else this morning 
Like hear this, that, that in this moment, Jesus wasn't caught. They didn't catch him. He, he wasn't combative towards the, towards the army, but he was in total and complete control the whole time. That's the point John is making to us in this passage. Nothing catches him off guard. In fact, in this scene, he's the only one who's not scared. He's the only one who's not losing his mind. In fact, the mob comes to him at night with weapons and torches because they're scared. They bring a Roman army. You don't do that for just a normal citizen. They bring an entire Roman army of 600 people because they're scared. The disciples are losing their mind. Peter cuts a dude's ear off like they are all scared to death, all of them except for Jesus. Why? Because he knew everything that was about to happen. He knew. And so that meets us right here where we sit this morning. Because it, whatever it is that you're facing, you've got to know that Jesus is in complete control of it. Like, he's in complete control, but if we're honest, we're a lot like Peter, aren't we? Like we like to try and take things into our own hands, especially in chaos, especially in seasons of uncertainty. Like, we're, we're just control freaks, so we try and control things even when they're totally out of control, whether that's facing that diagnosis losing a job, some kind of attack in your home or, or online or the, the, the church that is under attack, whatever it may be, we, we try and micromanage those things. We'll try and take it on. We'll try and control that situation in all kinds of different ways. We'll start blaming people. We'll go into denial mode. We'll, we'll start to excessively worry about different things. We'll start to try and distract ourselves with hobbies or work, or we'll try and suppress our own feelings. And we just try our best to take control over a situation that feels completely out of control. What I want to say is, Christian, do you see that you have a Savior that is perfectly capable of control? Nothing catches him off guard. Whatever it is you're facing, nothing catches him off guard. When things are scary, when they're unsettled, when it's cold and it's dark in your life, you gotta resist the urge to try and take control. Trust Jesus. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, like, I know how this story ends. Like, I know where we're, where we're headed from here, and, and Jesus didn't fight back. And at least Peter was willing to like swing a couple of times. Like Jesus just surrendered and then he's brutally killed. I would say you're right. But that was the plan. That was his plan. And without that plan, like there's no salvation. There's no hope. There's no, there's no healing. We're just dead men walking without this plan. You see it? So we gotta know, man, like his, his ways are better than our ways. <laughs> It doesn't mean that it's gonna be painless for you, but you can trust that he knows what he's doing and he's in control. He's working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes, Romans 8, 28 says. His ways are higher, his ways are different. So we, we trust him. And the story closes, verse 12. It says, in the company of soldiers, the commander and the Jewish official, officials arrested Jesus and tied him up. So the story ends and he's arrested and he's all alone. 
And we know that from Mark chapter 14, verse 50, it says, then they, talking about his disciples, all deserted him and ran away. Like on the surface, this feels like defeat, doesn't it? It feels like defeat. And that's the way I've always read this story. But John wants us to see that it's not defeat. Jesus is in control the whole time. Verse four, he knew everything that was about to happen. Like he's not reacting to things that he didn't see coming. Verse four says he went out to meet the army. He didn't, he didn't hang back and let them come try and find him in the woods. Like he goes out to meet them. Verse six, when he speaks like this entire army of Roman soldiers falls to the ground. Verse eight, he says, let these men go and the army and the officials did it. They listened to him. And then verse 11, he tells Peter to put your sword away because that's not my plan. See, if you see this story as an ambush, well, then you pity Jesus. But if you see it the way that it is, which is Jesus in complete and total control, well, then you trust him. Then you fear him. Then you worship him as your Lord and as your savior and king. So I don't know, again, what you're walking in here with today. But I do know that he's in control. This same Jesus that is in control in the middle of the night and in the face of a mob is in control in the middle of the darkness that you're facing. And so no matter what you're going through today, you can trust the power of Jesus, you can trust the protection of Jesus, and you can trust the plan of Jesus. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.